Hey friends, Ashton here, and welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. Hope you are doing well. We have a new friend this week joining us from Nash, Vegas. Her name is Allison <laughs> Fallon. She goes by Allie. She has a book coming out in November called Indestructible. I got my copy of it. Uh, wow, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, book, a page-turner, one that you just keep turning and keep turning as she... Um, introduces us to herself and her story in the world uh, and her pursuit of a life that is good, true, and beautiful. And so I think she is one of us. I am super grateful to have her at the table today. We were talking before the call as an Enneagram 4. She and I may run down some metaphor avenues today and uh, just put your seatbelt on. It'll be a good time. (laughs) So uh, that being said, Allie, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So great to be here. Well, you bet. So um, I am i don't necessarily know how we cross paths in the interwebs, um, but someone said, hey, you you and Allie need to get on a call. This would be a good conversation. Um, I love it. And so I, I, I like when that happens, and we kind of, I reached out to you, and we swapped some emails, and um, here we are. So when you introduce yourself and your work in the world, uh, where do you begin? Yeah, I tell people that I write things, I help people write things, and I believe with all my heart that a regular practice of writing can change your life. So I work with mostly with authors to help them outline their books, and I've written about 13, 12 or 13 books myself. I have lost track after 10, <laughs> but a bunch of them are for other people. Um, I've come along to support authors who need you know, a lot of extra support to actually get the words on the page, and then um, I've written two of my own memoirs. One called Packing Light that came out in 2013, and then one called Indestructible, which comes out in November. Beautiful. So um, how long have you been doing this, kind of for yourself as a practice and as, like, I guess a career? I have been writing for as long as I can remember, just as a practice of writing. I I always tell a story about... um, in the fourth grade, being in the fourth grade, I was given an assignment to write a story and it was supposed to be one, one page front and back and um, handwritten back in the days when we used to handwrite things. <laughs> and I showed up the next day at school with, with nine pages handwritten front wow. and back. Wow. And, um, my teacher really loved what I wrote. She liked it so much that she asked me to read it in front of the class. And that was, it was the first feeling. I feel like all of us have this moment in our lives when it's the moment when you're like, uh, the first moment that you remember feeling like maybe you might be good at something, yeah. you might have a talent. Yeah. And that it was, it was a really significant and special moment for me. But the interesting thing was, is it was decades before I ever published anything publicly. I used writing as a tool to um, cope with some, a lot of the anxiety and, you know, I, I call it through high school. It was really hmm. low grade anxiety and depression that I was dealing with. Um, and it didn't really ramp up until I got to college and hmm. um, started to become much worse. But, but through all through middle school and high school, I used writing as a tool to cope with these big feelings I was having that I wasn't sure what to do with. And to, um, I would never have had this language at the time, but I was working through some trauma from my childhood and, um, it was a comfort, a great comfort to me and, um, an escape and, you know, an escape in the best way. And it was also a way for me to explore questions that I didn't, that I had about my life and my faith and what it meant to be alive and in the world 
that I didn't feel like I had anyone else I could really talk to about. I didn't feel safe in my faith environment to be asking the questions mm-hmm. that I was curious about. Yep. So writing was a place where I could ask and answer those questions for myself. Wow. So, 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 yeah. so even without forms of media, you, you have found that writing at a very, very early age for you um, was, was a practice that, that led you to some healing and some liberation. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I experienced that on a personal and visceral level long before I ever helped any other writers have that experience. And that mm-hmm. happened even long before I ever had read any of the very compelling research yeah. about how powerful writing can be to bring healing into your life. Now, I've, the research that I read later in life, I and mean, it's really been in the last five years or so that I've started reading the the brain science that's available, but um, it's mostly just affirming what I had already experienced on my own. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I just love as, uh, at, at very young ages when we stumble upon some of this truth, um, and it may be decades out before the, the science catches up to it. <laughs> totally. Um, but that, uh, there's something about putting it on paper. I remember the first time I got into Julie Cameron, the artist way. Oh yes. Um, that, that was that was a place for me that's like oh yeah this this isn't about you gotta hit publish this is just about getting things that are in there totally. out there um, about having some of that inner narrative out on the paper and even if it's just for your eyes I think it is mm-hmm. um, a beautiful practice that can lead to healing exactly so good so uh, indestructible um, comes yeah. out in November this this is your personal second book is that right? It is my second, yeah. Yeah, second. So um, this is a this is a deep, deep book. This is uh, this gets into the uh, the 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 deep places of the soul, um, mm-hmm. and some really, really um, I think spaces where we can ask big questions. Um, you uncover in this book. Why, I guess I always ask people, why, why this book and why now? Of all the books that you could write, um, why Indestructible? Yeah, well, I, the thing I always tell authors that I work with is a book really asks to be written more than you try to write it. Yeah. It kind of knocks at your door for a long time until you answer. And the truth is, I didn't want to write this book. I tried to write uh, uh, several other books before this book came into being. Yeah because I would have rather have written a book about the quote unquote redemption story of my marriage. Um, that was the book I was trying to write back when I was still married. Hmm. Um, you know, our marriage had started off pretty tumultuous from the very beginning. And I hoped that by the time we were four years in, we had done a lot of work. We had met with a therapist for quite some time. We had, um, done all the things that people tell you to do when you're struggling in a marriage. And I was trying to write a book about how, um, God had really shown up and transformed the relationship that we were in. And that just, uh, I tell people writing is diagnostic. So I would sit down to the page <laughs> and stare at the blinking cursor and I couldn't get any words down and it wasn't coming. It wasn't coming. It wasn't coming. Um, and I mean, the irony couldn't be any thicker in my life. I was literally staring at my computer screen when I stumbled across information that, changed the way that I saw my marriage forever. And ultimately that that was the first, that was the last day that I was married in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah. And then this was the book that came 
came to me, woke me up in the middle of the night, literally. And I have worked with enough authors to know that this is not uncommon, but I would wake up at 2.01 or 2.02 or 2.03 in the morning over and over and over again in the middle of the night with the most vivid picture of what chapter four was supposed to be or what chapter three was supposed to be or whatever. Um, it would just be like almost like this thing that had overtaken me and I had to get the words down in the middle of the night. And that was that is an experience that I find to be quite common actually with people who are working on a book is the book comes to you and it knocks on your door and then it knocks louder and louder and louder and it kind of, you know, it's a little graphic, but like has you by the throat until you get the words down and then it lets you go. Um, so, so that's the answer to the question is I wrote the book that had to be written. Otherwise I couldn't move forward with my life. Yeah. I think Parker J. Palmer has said something like, don't, don't ask what you should do with your life. Ask what your life is trying to do with you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and it seems as though, uh, as you could hear those same words through the lens of a writer for those out there that may be thinking about writing something, you would probably encourage them to ask the same question. 100%. I mean, it's funny, people will come to me when I work with authors, they'll say, I have three ideas, which one should I write? And I'll say, well, tell me your ideas. And then it's always like, well, I have this one idea, I think this would be really good in the market, I could totally see how people would really love this book. And then I have this second idea, this is the one that my grandmother really thinks I should write, it's (laughs) XYZ. And then, but I have this third idea, this is so stupid, this nobody would ever read this book. But then they announced to me this idea that's like, you can tell their eyes get wider and they just really lean into the conversation and they're like, this is my dream book, you know? And it's, it's not as cut and dry as like, I think that there can be some, if you think of the activity of writing as both like a spiritual artistic practice and being an author as a business, it it is both. Hmm. So you can talk about it from a business perspective make a smart business decision to write a book first that's going to have a lot of market value because you recognize it's going to build an audience for you that's going to give you permission to write your dream book, you can talk about it from that perspective. And it's not, there's, it's amoral, right? It's mm-hmm. not like, right. it's not right or wrong to talk right. about it that way. But you can also talk about it from a perspective of like the book that is going to set you free. If you write it, who gives a you-know-what if anyone ever reads it? And at the end of the day, I think you have to answer the question for yourself. What are you trying to do with this book? Are you trying to write a book that's going to have some, that's going to get you some market attention? There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing. But I think we have to be honest with ourselves about what we're doing and what we're trying to do with our writing. And um, I think more often than not, we're unwilling to be honest with ourselves that, for example, an author really wants to find freedom through their writing and they're very concerned with how many Instagram followers they have. And I just have to help them see mm-hmm. those are two different conversations. That's right. just two different conversations. Get clear on your intentions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which really helps in life and in writing. It does. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's the, the miraculous thing about writing is, as you start to think about your writing, it, the parallels between writing and life are so close. Yeah. That that's why I say writing is diagnostic. You get people talk about writer's block. I say there's no such thing as writer's block. Writer's block is life block. That's if right. you are stuck in your writing, you're stuck in your life. And um, I think that's how closely interwoven they are, which is why it can be so powerful to to have an idea that you think like this could be fun to write about and sit down and try to write about it. Um, it can be really powerful because you start to recognize like oh, 
here's a really sticky area. Like I try to write what I think about this subject and I can't really come up with the words. Imagine the kind of freedom you might find, my kind of progress you might find if you were able to get the words out of your head and down on the paper. Yeah, yeah. One of the points that I wanted to chat about that you wrote in the book was this idea. I loved how you said, it's impossible to be stuck in your writing and not stuck in your life. And then you follow that up with, it shows us where love isn't flowing. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, there's the juice. That's, that's a salty sentence. Um, yeah. Reflect on that with me, because you talk about that in the book, that early in the book, that you would sit down. You're trying to put truth onto the screen, and you just can't type. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and eventually you come to kind of learn that, oh, well, the reason why that wasn't coming is because you just weren't living, being authentic to that true self. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Talk to me about that, where kind of that idea that it shows us where love isn't flowing. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, one of the things that was happening in my life was I was working so hard to be good that I wasn't giving love permission to have its way with me. Hmm. And that's, that's really what was, so the, the image of that is me sitting at my computer thinking, I'm going to write this world changing, life changing book about how God has the power to redeem marriages. And I hope that you hear the sarcasm. I hope that anyone who's listening hears the sarcasm or like the the thickness of the irony, the ego in that statement. Yeah. For any of us to think that we have the power or that our story is powerful enough to save anyone or change anyone is just like so insane. (laughs) And yet so many, I mean, truly, I feel like this is most important to talk about in a faith context because so many of us are moving through the world with that kind of mentality, like that we have this responsibility, this obligation, this, this, it's like a debt that we owe to the world to save people from their sin or from their own destruction or it just was never our job ever, Mm. ever, ever. In fact, you know, I have a friend who says, um, she says, a spouse, she was married for a while to an addict, and she says, a spouse who is concerned about her own sobriety is not looking in her husband's liquor cabinet. Hmm. So we spend so much time, I mean, the, the, maybe the metaphors are getting too thick, I don't know. <laughs> no, not for you for <laughs> but, um, but yeah, we spend so much time looking through other people's liquor cabinets thinking that we've got to figure out a way to save them. Hmm. When we haven't spent any time really examining our own motives, Let's our own go. self, our own reason for being why, where we are, yep. when it really, when I really, the dust settled and everything settled, everything, when I gained a sense of clarity around my marriage, the truth is the reason I stayed and fought for as long as I could was way more about my own ego, protecting my image, protecting my own sense of like uh, a feeling that I had control over my life than it was about loving him or loving me or being in love. And what I found was that actually the way to stay in love was the most counterintuitive thing I had ever done, which was to let go and let things be as they had always been. I just wasn't willing to admit the truth of how they had always been. Um, and then once that happened, honestly, if so the details of my life changed in such a way that from many faith perspectives, it would seem as if I sort of strayed from the path. Mm, yeah. And yet the writing started flowing, the love started flowing, the transformation that was always trying to happen in my life suddenly was given permission to happen, even though the details of my life changed in such a way 
that shattered my my image yeah. you know yeah in a way you'd never wish it upon yourself oh yeah and, and and yet you can now look back in that moment and say this transformation would not have happened without it a hundred percent i mean i would never wish what i went through on my worst enemy yeah. it was terrible yeah. <laughs> and yet at the same time i could never be where i am without it yeah yeah you don't you don't say this in the middle of it no. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can only have you can only have these types of reflections and insights when yeah. you've moved through it um and and i love you said something that was like i was i was so worried about being good that i, I wasn't allowing love to have its way with me something like that um yeah. and 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 connect correct me if i'm wrong here when you say love was having love was trying to have its way with you was actually ushering in this invitation of surrender and letting go. Hundred yeah. percent. And I, I mean, I say especially to people who are coming from a faith perspective, I'm like, if you want to look at the example, the image of love, That's then right. look to Jesus on the cross. The image is total surrender to the most heartbreaking, horrific, painful death to self that you can possibly imagine. He showed us the way of love. The way of love is surrender. And it's funny to me how often we. Um, it's not, it's not funny. It's part of the, it's part of what it means to be human. It's part of the human experience, how much we resist that. And we actually think love means like, I've got to like pull myself up under my bootstraps and serve more and give more and be more of a martyr and, you know, like be more of a doormat and never complain about anything and never have a bad day. And actually what if it was, what if the answer was more about surrendering mm. to the beauty and tragedy of the human condition? So it's like, the truth of the matter is I am miserable today. I will not be miserable forever, but today this is painful. This hurts. I'm, I'm, um, I'm sad. I wish this wasn't the case. You know, like mm -hmm. that actually is an image of love. Yep. Um, yeah. as much as it is an image of love to, to rise above the heartbreaking things that happen in right. our lives. Right. Yeah. Man, we could we could walk down that road for a long time <laughs> <laughs> about this idea of love, surrender, letting go. It's not being about more right, more correct, um, yeah. about crossing the T's properly and dotting the I's. You, 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 and and here's the deal: two people can only have this conversation through the fire. Agreed. Uh, I was yes. not I I was not prepared pre 2012 to have conversations like this. Um, and you know, it just, it just you know, death and transformation, death and trans yeah. it's just, and, and it's everywhere we look. And mm -hmm. most of the time it's the last thing that we actually want to happen. And yet the next place that we need to get always, there's some type of death. Sometimes they're super dramatic and sometimes they're pretty shallow and not that dramatic, but no matter what transformation doesn't happen without it. Agreed. Totally. Yeah. Well, so um, one of these ideas or this, I would assume you've got some conversation and data around this is like bodily knowing. Mm -hmm. And this was, I was super curious about this because you got into like kind of your, your yoga story, uh, weaves through this a little bit and, and what you were learning about staying with your breath and things like that. Um, but mm -hmm. you, you talked about this specific pain that you had for a long time. Um, yeah. and, and that eventually you came to find out like this thing was whispering and then it was screaming at you. Um, mm -hmm. 
for for some of our listeners that just went, okay, these two are super woo woo, and they just they I was I was on track with them, and now they're goofy. I'm out. Um, yeah. Talk to me um, about bodily knowing because this is um, this is super super insightful. I think. Okay, so just like with the writing experience, this is something I experienced viscerally and personally before I read the research. But for someone who's listening right now who's thinking, y'all are crazy, you've just gone off the deep end, and I'm, <laughs> I'm about to turn this podcast off, get a book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And actually, if you want to do the shortcut version, listen to the interview he does with Krista Tippett on a podcast called On Being. Yeah. The Body Keeps the Score? The Body Keeps the Score. Okay. Bessel van der Kolk is the oh, author geez. of that book. It's a it's a highly in-depth, very well-researched book. What it's, a title. <laughs> right? It's so good. Um, came out, I think, in 20, late 2015, I want to say. Um, but it's, it is, like I said, highly researched, um, a really in-depth look at what we know to be true about the body talking to us. When, the body holding on to things that our brain can't hmm. process. So, um, and at its simplest version, it's just like this. You think about how emotions, thoughts are experienced in our brain, but emotions are experienced in our body. What happens when you get scared? Yeah. The first thing that happens is your palms will sweat, your heart will, your heart rate will increase. You might get goosebumps, the hair on your arms might raise. Your, any emotion that you experience is experienced viscerally. This is why we talk about being, knowing things in our gut. I just had a gut feeling. Yeah. It's like we feel things in our stomach, in our intestines, in our ligaments, in our muscles. In our, you know, We get sick and we think, like, I just caught a bug. And, and there's just the research is showing it's more and more clear there's more to it than that. Mm-hmm. It's not that the you know, microbiomes and bacteria and those sorts of things don't exist or that they don't play a role. It's just that there's also there's other stuff going on mm. that we're not thinking about. And so let me back up for a minute and say, cause I said before I experienced this personally, before I started reading the research, what happened for me was my marriage ended the, the I uncovered the information that really ended my marriage in November of 2015. And in September of 2015, I started going to yoga totally unrelated. In fact, I think the conversation had gone like this. My, and my husband at the time was like, you know, uh, I think it might be really, I heard, I was talking to someone about how, um, hot yoga can improve your focus and cognition. It can help you be more productive. It might be really good for us to go to hot yoga because we were running a business together at the time and trying to work on ways to be more productive and efficient. So we go to the local yoga studio sign up for a hot yoga class. He came to one class with me and he was kind of like, no thanks. Cause it's, <laughs> it's intense. I mean, yeah. it's like, um, the room is heated to 104 degrees. They tell you the first time you go that your whole goal is just to stay in the room without leaving. And you know, if you need to lay on your mat the whole time, that's fine. So he came to one class with me. I kept going. And, um, I, I it is no coincidence. I'm convinced now, especially but I thought even at the time, how interesting that I started going to yoga in September and something became known to me that had been known on a bodily level, but I hadn't really given myself permission to know it Hmm. two months later. So all this time for years I had been in a marriage and two months after I start doing yoga is when the the dam breaks Hmm. and I, I finally allow myself to know the thing that I have kind of always known. 
Um, and so, so yeah, so for me, it was a matter of, um, even through the whole divorce process, starting to tune in to what my body was telling me in order to know what I was feeling. Cause I, I think I had spent most of my life and most of us have, I think not giving myself permission to really know what I felt. Hmm. In fact, if someone had said like, how do you feel about that? I probably would have been like, I don't really know how I feel about that. And the truth is we do know how we feel about it, but we haven't given ourselves permission to tune in. And the moment that we can get into our body, now we suddenly start to know how we feel about a thing. And here's the crazy thing. Nothing practically changes. Right. Nothing changed. The only difference is, is I come into a knowing of myself that I haven't had before. And now I have the power to make a change. A new, a new radar of awareness. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, from the day that my, from before I knew the information to after I knew the information, was I any less happy in the relationship? No, no. I mean, nothing changed. Mm-hmm. The, it was not, it was not as if a, a new thing happened that had never happened before. It was just, I came into a new knowing of what had happened which gave me permission to gave me an opportunity to sit in the truth of what was true, like the sit in the place of what's true, which gives you an opportunity to make a choice, a different kind of choice to move forward. So, uh, you know, I, that's the practice, the daily practice of owning, of uh, tuning into what you're, is really going on with me of owning it. You know, like it could be as simple as you wake up in the morning and you're like, let me tune in with myself. Let me check in with myself for a minute. How am I feeling right now? I'm in a bad mood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I just am cranky. I'm feeling like really resistant. I don't want to work today. I don't want to do the thing that I know I have to do. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like no judgment about it. Yeah. But just Interesting. Like, how, how yeah. fascinating that I am feeling resistant. And you know, if that goes on for weeks at a time and every single day you wake up in a bad mood and you don't want to go into your job, then all of a sudden you have this opportunity to be like, I wonder if there is a way to make a change so that I don't have to live my entire life dreading my days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But before you come into awareness of that, you don't really have a choice. You're just sort of going through the motions. That's right. Reacting to and whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So for maybe some of our listeners, they're like, okay, well, every morning I feel something funny in my elbow. Um, <laughs> you like, uh, uh, just a, a, a stillness, a bodily scan and aware, uh, just a general awareness. Um, how, how would you kind of invite someone into just very gradual one Oh one, you know, taking the temp of, of bodily knowing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So super beginner version of this is first thing when you wake up in the morning, there's tons of brain science behind this, which I won't go into right this second, but I can tell you in a minute if you want. First thing when you wake up in the morning, the first thing most people do, it's 80 plus percent of people. Do you know what the first thing is most people do in the morning? Check their phone. Yep. Yep. First thing most of us do. It's super easy for it to be this way because our alarms are set on our phone and whatever. But the first thing most people do is go to Instagram, go to email, go to check and see if anyone texted, whatever. The minute you do that, you have lost lost an opportunity Hmm. because it's going to take you a little bit of – uh, it just takes a little bit of work to get back into your limbic system. Yep. And I'm, I'm, I'm using brain, the brain science language. But um, the first thing when you wake up in the morning, because your limbic system is really active when you're sleeping, you have this opportunity. Your limbic system is really tied to bodily sensations. 
So you're really in touch, actually, quite in touch in the mornings or late at night, sometimes for people, with what's going on in your body. Um, so first thing in the morning, like maybe just three minutes before you check your phone, maybe it's three minutes, maybe it's five, maybe it's 20. I started doing 20 minutes in the morning because I just started to really enjoy it. But yeah. just lay in your bed and you just sort of check in with yourself. How am I feeling? Am I feeling any major, uh, like a beginner level of this would be like, you don't have to interpret what your mm -hmm. body is saying. Just check in and say like, does my stomach hurt? Yeah. Do I have back pain? Yeah. Yeah. Do I have um, like chronic pain, muscle soreness? Uh, where do I feel tight in my body? Where do I feel more loose? Where, you know, just checking in and you don't have to interpret anything at first, but just be, become aware and over time, the pains in our body do start to have a pattern to them. For me, the number one symptom I'll see flare up when I'm feeling stress is my stomach. So my digestion goes crazy every single time. That's just a pattern that I've noticed in my life. I'm like, oh, interesting. Okay, you're feeling stress and you're having digestive problems. So when you can start to make those interpretations, now it just is, it's just information. It's yeah. not like yeah. there's no judgment about it. It's just like, yeah, my stomach is feeling tight again today. Interesting. Um, I must be feeling stressed about something. I wonder what I'm feeling stressed about. You can start to kind of like ask yourself those questions and go down the path and you could even write about it. And that's always really helpful. Um, but I think it, you, again, you can just start with identifying what the, what the sensation is and then move on to trying to interpret the sensation and then asking yourself, I wonder why I might be feeling, could there be a reason that I'm feeling anxiety? I wonder what that, might be yeah yeah I, I love your invitation to just simply take inventory um mm -hmm. don't don't demand interpretation day one um i think just the the awareness of coming into the bodily knowing centering centering into your breath um that that in itself will become a teacher um mm -hmm. and no need to force it um we may need to do like you know, Ali Fallon 2.0, just bodily knowing. I, I, think, I, think, I think you're a vessel in this thing, a deep, deep vessel, so. Into more of the book, uh, you, you kind of paraphrased a, a Marianne Williamson quote, and she's got enough mm -hmm. quotes to fill many books like she already right. has. Um, but one of those was that uh, the spiritual life is not life without drama but a life without cheap drama. Um, hold my hand on that idea that, okay. that we're not, uh, the, 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 the pursuit of a life of spirituality, you're, you're not going to avoid drama, but, but there is an exchange of what one may call cheap drama. Yeah, so I think um, well, what I mean by that is that human beings are wired for drama. If you wonder why we watch reality TV, why we gossip about our friends behind our back, despite our best efforts not to, why we, um, you know, create waves in relationships. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation you're for, so probably yes. You've been in a situation where you're like, in your inside of your head, you're like, why am I making a big deal out of this thing? I'm picking a fight with this person. <laughs> what is my problem? It's because we're wired for drama, you know? I mean, like, drama is part of how we, we are wired for struggle. We're wired to overcome struggle. We're wired to be forward-moving, to make progress. So um, we can either 
pain, struggle, conflict in life are inevitable. And we can either have pain, struggle, conflict that's moving us towards something good, true, and beautiful. Mm. Or we can have pain, struggle, and drama that's not taking us anywhere and that's just passing the time. Downward spiral. Yes. And I think a lot of us settle for the cheap drama because um, it's like, if you think of it like a drug almost, it's like a hit of something, something interesting, something to keep us awake, something to keep us, something to make, to make us feel like we're alive. We're feeling something at least. We don't, we aren't feeling numb. Um, and we're not really sure how, we're not really sure we have what it takes to handle the true drama. Hmm. I remember saying to myself so many times during the divorce process and after, I feel like I'm living in a movie, like the worst movie <laughs> that I could possibly imagine. Like I didn't know that things like this could really exist in life. And, and, you know, to saying to myself, like, I don't think I have, I don't, how could I possibly have what it takes to get through this? And now being on the other side of it, mostly on the other side of it. I mean, I don't know that there's ever really like, a, it's not like a clear line that you cross over, but um, if it's a hill or a mountain, I've definitely peaked the mountain and have come down the other side. <laughs> then now being in that position, I'm like, the amazing thing I have now is I have a knowing that I'm capable of doing something like that. Um, I have the strength that you gain when you go on a journey like that. And I have now even a greater capacity and capability to overcome challenges that might matter for something even bigger than myself. Hmm. So that's what we gain when we choose the meaningful drama over the cheap drama is we gain an ability. You look at someone like Marianne Williamson, she's such an inspiration to me. That woman is inspiring hundreds of thousands of people all across the world. She's, she's um, invested, has her hands in making political progress and, um, you know, writing books that are like keeping people afloat during their darkest times. And that's inspiring to me. And I don't know if it's inspiring to everyone or um, I would imagine there are plenty of people who it's inspiring to, but I look to her and think, okay, if, if the path that I'm on gets me, if I'm going that direction, then this is worth it. Mm. Then at least the pain that I'm suffering isn't just meaningless pain that doesn't matter for anything. I think actually a lot of us are suffering meaningless pain that doesn't matter for anything only because we're not sure that we have what it takes at the end of the day. And I, I my, my encouragement would be to all of us, to myself. I say this to myself all the time. It's like, if I'm going to endure the pain anyway, I guess I might as well endure the pain that's getting me somewhere. Hmm, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Is that one of your affirmations? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't mind the earth. <laughs> I see. I've, uh, yeah, some of your Instagram affirmations are beautiful. Um, oh, and I, uh, I'm, I'm a mantra guy, right? I've got a yes. vault of, um, things, just six, seven, eight words that are on repeat. Um, but yeah, there, there is something about allowing those moments and, and realizing that drama is part of the game, but there, there is a drama that leads to transformation and there's a drama that is just downward spiral and doesn't really help anybody. Um, and I think having to be aware in the midst of that and make the, make the human choice to say, this is the direction I'm going is some of our great work today. And I, and I think too, like we can be really compassionate with ourselves about the cheap drama too. I, I think thinking about it this way helps me have lots of compassion for the version of myself five years ago or two years ago, right, even, right. who would like get caught up in the gossipy kind of like, can you imagine what so-and-so is doing? Um, 
or even like watching shows like The Bachelor or whatever. Like it's so there's there's a reason we're drawn to that stuff, and it's not because we're terrible people, and it's not even I don't I just don't have the same sort of I don't make the same moral judgments about those things that I used to. I feel kind of released from that, but I think um, I will never forget my therapist saying to me when I the first appointment I had with her post finding out about everything that was going on with my marriage and explaining to her everything that was happening. And she said, this is the moment when girls become women. Hmm. And I just felt like, okay, this is the moment. I will never forget that conversation with her because it was like, there comes a moment when the chief drama no longer seems appealing to you. And it's not because you're better than it. It's just because you've grown out of it. You're like, I outgrew the feeling that gossip was fun. It's not fun to me anymore because I have been on the other side of the gossip (laughs) and I know that it's like unproductive and unhelpful and everybody's, you know, I mean, most people most of the time are doing the best they can, truly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, once you see, you can't unsee. True. Once you taste, you can't untaste. Um, And, and I I had this conversation with another uh, guest today, is that you also, you get eyes of compassion and empathy for maybe some of those previous ways you would have seen the world uh, mm-hmm. when you see other people there because you go, oh, yeah, I was there too once. <laughs> like, yeah, agreed. I've, I've been there. I uh, totally. I was a fool. Um, I've said things that I regret. I've made decisions that weren't the best decisions. Totally. Um, and, and I think that it, there's a little bit of that. Um, I don't know if it's the, the, the arrogance or pride that's, you know, uh, transformed, but there, there is something about moving through the flame as you and I have talked in transformation and arriving on the other, other side saying Shalom. Totally. <laughs> the, the, totally. There's, there's no need to fight yeah. about this. The, the way that I've explained that paradigm shift to myself, cause this has been a massive paradigm shift in my life is I used to look for people who seemed like they were doing a really good job at life. And I wanted to do my life like them. Hmm. And now I look for people I don't necessarily always trust people who seem like they're doing a really good job at life. I really trust people who have suffered and who have leveraged their suffering for their own healing. And when I see someone who has suffered, I'm like, you are trustworthy because you, anybody who has suffered has a deeper compassion than someone who Mm -hmm. hasn't suffered. It's Mm -hmm. just, there's just no way to get through true suffering without, without like a deep well of compassion being carved through you. And so People like that are gentler. They have less of an ego. They're not trying to prove anything anymore. They don't need to be perfect. They don't always need everybody to like them all the time. It's just, a, it's like a, almost like a, you've crossed over to the other side. Yeah. I don't know yeah. how else to say it, but I just really, really, anybody who I meet who I'm like, you really have been to hell and back and you've leveraged your suffering for your own healing. I'm like, I, I would trust you. Hmm. Leverage your suffering. That's a, that's a thought. Man, huh. I'm like having uh, therapy here with you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, this is my calling as a therapist, apparently. Yeah. Um, so uh, what like, uh, maybe we've even already got into some of this, but what, what spiritual practice and practices and disciplines um, have you found to be beneficial? I, I guess, and the way I could ask this is to maintain that spirit of peace, mm-hmm. um, that, that, uh, I sense like a real rested posture with you, um, grounded, centered. Mm-hmm. Those are words that are coming up. Um, what are, what are some of those, um, practices, disciplines, yoga, centering prayer, 
yeah, all, all of that. I, I would love to hear any of your daily rituals or something that you know you could share with us that has kind of helped you um, stay in that space. Yeah. Yoga is a big one. I do yoga five times a week if I can, six wow. times if I can. I'm, and it's not always like that, but if I'm in town and I'm unavailable, I go take a class. Um, and then when I'm on the road, I do, I'm, I do travel a lot, so I try to go when I'm on the road. It's just always harder. But that's definitely one that I use, I personally use. I also use writing as a tool. For me, writing is prayer. It's mm-hmm. meditation. Um, I've done quite a bit of breath work. It's not something, it's not a, a regular ritual implemented in my daily routine, but it's definitely um, something I do. I do the, the daily check-in thing in the mornings. I do that every single morning. Um, so those are the main things that I do. One thing I do want to say about this is I used to have this idea that there were certain rituals that needed to be your ritual in order for you to be in a, like a, to be spiritually sound. And I think a lot of us get that whatever environment you grew up in, right? If you grew up Christian or Catholic or Mormon, Jehovah's witness or whatever, you have your set of principles and rituals that you were taught that, that this is how you, um, connect with God, or this is how you have a strong spiritual practice, or this is how you become a spiritual person. And for me, because of the trauma that I faced, I had to change a lot of my spiritual practices, not because the practices I was using were wrong, but because now those practices had a strong association to something that was that no longer it was no longer working for me. And I think this happens to a lot of people, and then they get really hard on themselves because you know every time I go to church I have a panic attack, but I've got to figure out a way to get over this because I really need I know church is important and whatever. And I would just say find a spiritual practice that that works for you that does what a spiritual practice is meant to do. And release yourself from the bondage of feeling like it has to look a certain way or it has to be a certain thing. I think that's why there can be so much benefit to trying spiritual practices from other faiths yep. um, because they don't have the attachment to you of like, that's right. you know, if you grew up going to Sunday school and looking at the felt boards or whatever, like that has an attachment to you. You have an attachment to it that that someone who grew up in the Buddhist faith wouldn't have an attachment to a felt board because they didn't have that experience every Sunday of their life growing up. So I think there can be so much benefit in trying other spiritual rituals and practices like yoga, for example, wasn't something I grew up doing. In fact, I think in my faith community from my upbringing, there probably was some uh, skepticism around yoga. Like that's, that's a really new agey kind of thing. You know, um, I hope you're not saying any, any, you know, Hindu words or <laughs> whatever. Um, but like giving yourself permission to try things yeah. that are outside of the faith that you grew up with, I think can add a lot of richness yeah. and well-roundedness to a spiritual practice and can actually deepen and enrich in your faith. It's funny to me. I get all the time now people will read the book and they'll be like, can you talk to me about your relationship with God now that you, you know, now that after everything you've been through and I'm just like... <laughs> To, I understand the question and I have no, there's no hard feelings about the question, but it just, it makes me, it is funny to me because I think like never before in my life has my relationship with God been deeper or richer or more satisfying or truer to me than it is now. Just because it doesn't look like it used to look doesn't mean, yeah. If it's true, it's true everywhere. Exactly. That's very insightful. Um, to lean into so many of the, and there, there's the, the list is endless. 
I mean, there's walking prayers, right? Like, totally. they're, they're, like you can, there there's literally people I know that every day they take a walk around the block and every totally. day some type of new surrender and letting go <laughs> happened because they walked around the block. Agreed. Um, so, you know, you don't have to centering prayer, the breathing prayer, prayer of examine, Lectio Divina, all of these things within our household um, that people have used. There, there is, um, there's plenty out there and, uh, I think you would probably resonate that um, if it gets you to a more spacious, freeing, liberated place of love, peace, and patience, and kindness, and gentleness, then, mm-hmm. then hey, it's probably, that's probably a good path. So, like, what's kind of keeping you curious these days? I know you're writing, you're helping writers. Um, any new, uh, it sounds to me like you're an avid reader and studier of all types of things. Um, what's kind of keeping you intrigued these days? One thing that really has my attention, I've been reading voraciously actually for years, but more and more lately, I'm just getting more curious about it is, um, I'm just, I'm just going to like go, I'm going to totally geek out right now. Cause I just think Let's this go. is so fascinating. Let's go. <laughs> um, so I don't know if how much you know about attachment theory, but I started reading, I got into it because of a book. Well, let me back up and say my dad's a clinical psychologist. So I grew up talking about relationships in my household in a way that I don't think most people mm-hmm. do because my dad has spent most of his career, 30 years of his career working with married couples Um, helping them to deepen their relationships and also helping couples who are in crisis. So it was always fascinating to me. And I was always stealing books from his bookshelf. Like I remember being like eight and 10 and 12 years old and taking books and reading about like, you know, books on marriage that were probably like content wise way over my head, (laughs) but um, just being fascinated by it. So then there was like a more popular book that came out called attached. And I can't remember the author's name right now, but it was, um, a book to help people understand their what attachment style means, what your attachment style is, and how it impacts how you do relationships. Hmm. And so I read that book first and was really intrigued by it. So then I just kept going down the rabbit trail of Amazon recommendations. And then I told my dad what I was doing, and he recommended a couple of other books to me. And so the most recent one that I'm reading is a much more in-depth book called Attachment and Psychotherapy. But basically the idea is this, that your attachment to your primary caregiver, and I could talk about what that really means, but is formed within your first really 12 months of life, 12 to 24 months of life, and dictates your success in your life as an adult in across what they say, they say 10 areas. Hmm. So including like your financial success, your ability to relate to your friends, whether or not your kids will report liking you, how likely you are to get married and stay married, um, how likely you are to report being happy in your romantic relationships, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for a long time in attachment theory, they were saying that once your attachment theory was formed by age two, that it was set for life. But now neuroscience is showing you actually can alter your attachment theory in adulthood, which is like, think of the profound impact for every single one of us, basically, because it's like, if you, if you, you know, if you don't have a secure attachment style, you can fix that. Mm, wow. <laughs> so, um, you can get what they're calling earned secure attachment. Wow. So I could talk for two hours about that. Yeah, sir- well, we may need to, may need to circle the wagon <laughs> on that. There's been a lot of the Enneagram conversation. Chris Hewart's, 
um, broke down some stuff with me before on fixation passions within each of the numbers that I think yes. had pro- there's probably some alignment there with that. Um, totally. But uh, wow, yeah, yeah, you're leaning into your five wing, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, well, I, I always ask everyone this, um, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh man. Um, it's this Mary Oliver quote. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. And then she actually, I wrote this in my book, but she actually goes on to say, you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Hmm. That, that would be my advice to my younger self. I think I was just trying my whole life so hard to be good. I forgot how good I already was. Let's go. That's what I'm talking about. That's a good place to end right there. Awesome. Beautiful. Um, well, hey, how can we um, send people to follow you and your work in the world? Yeah, you can find me on my website, Allie, or sorry, um, it's just allisonfallon.com. So A-L-L-I-S-O-N and then Fallon, like Jimmy Fallon. And if you are interested in working with me to outline a book, you can uh, do that there. You can also pre-order my book on the website. And you can also find me on Instagram at Allie Fallon, A-L-L-Y. Beautiful. Well, hey, on behalf of all of us, we are thankful for you and your good, true, and beautiful work. I really, I, uh, this, is, this is an interesting friendship. Thanks for chatting with us. Oh, I, oh uh, my gosh, I'm so honored. Thank I you think, for having me. I think that uh, maybe we can have 2.0 sometime. And, I would love that. Uh, I love what you're doing. It's really incredible. I'm cheering you on. Keep going. Um, yeah, and thank you so much for including me. Absolutely. Hey, before you go, don't forget to hit subscribe right there on your phone. That's probably where you're listening. Uh, and if you enjoyed this, would you mind leaving us a review? One of the things that we're wanting to do is get this information out to as many people as we can. And we are finding that uh, when people leave good, true, and beautiful reviews, uh, that helps us get this information out more and more to people all across the world. I do not take it lightly uh, that you invite me to ride shotgun with you in your car. Uh, You allow these conversations to be a part of your jogs. You allow these conversations to be a part of the communities and families and businesses that you've been entrusted. Uh, I do not take that lightly at all. And I am thrilled uh, that you have joined us here at this table, at this conversation. There's always a seat left. There's always room for more. uh, And we are just so grateful for you guys joining us here at Good, True, and Beautiful. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid. Listen to the bluebirds sing and be love.